Well, this is our last, our last class, so we've got to get through seven chapters tonight, and um, we won't do that. We'll, uh, we're going we're gonna to attempt to get through chapters five and seven tonight, um, and uh, we'll kind of, we kind of skipped over five in order to do six, because five and seven really kind of go hand in hand. And um, so to get us kind of started, I, I think it's always, you know, interesting that we we take a letter from the book of a book of the Bible and we study it over many, many weeks and in the great detail. And and sometimes you might only, you know, read one or two verses for, for a couple of weeks. And yet the letter was meant to be written or to be read in one sitting. It, it, it wasn't this, you know, long letter that you would read over over many weeks where the, the guy would get up and read just a few sentences and then would say, OK, let's think about that for a second. It was meant to read from front to back. And, and uh, I think sometimes when we, when we do that, and it's great, I think, that we study you know, one or two verses or, or a passage in great detail, but we tend to forget what was the bigger picture. What was the, the writer um, writing for? What was he trying to accomplish? And what's the, the context of the passage? So um, as a way to kind of start to lead us into uh, what we're going to talk about tonight, you know, particularly uh, chapter 7 of Hebrews. Uh, let's start with a little bit of review. So, who is the letter written for? Believers. For believers. Namely, you know, what kind of believers? Is there anything unique about these people? They were, they were predominantly Jewish, we're, th- we're pretty sure, based on the, the context of it. Um, but it was probably written for Hebrew Christians in around Jerusalem. And that's important to understand because of the, the type of life that a, uh, a Jewish Christian would be experiencing in Jerusalem wasn't very nice. They were under incredible pressure, incredible persecution from family, from friends and other loved ones. Uh, they would have been cut off to the point where um, family wouldn't have anything to do with them. They would have been isolated, ostracized, um, simply because they chose to put their faith in Christ. Um, and so for some, they lost, like I said, their families, they lost their businesses, their income, some might have lost their homes. So they were under intense persecution when this writer is writing to them. And now, why is he writing the letter? What's the purpose then? What's his hope? To encourage them. To encourage them, yeah. And he's got a major theme throughout the letter of Hebrews. And what's that major theme? Jesus is better. And therefore, now live by faith. Trust in Him on an ongoing basis. Not just a one time, I I receive Him as my Savior, now I'm set to go to heaven one day, but now, right now. And to to make his point, what the author of Hebrew does, is he he begins this comparison. And he's taking all these great um, characters from the Old Testament and kind of putting them up against Jesus to show them that Jesus is better. And so in chapters 1 and 2, he looked at first the prophets and the angels and how Jesus being a son is so much better than the prophets and the angels. He's so much greater that things said about Jesus would never apply to to angels. So Jesus is better than the the prophets and the angels. And that led to, in chapter 2, the great warning. Or the first of the many warnings, but the first great warning, which was do not neglect this wonderful salvation. Don't let it just drift by. Don't don't let it pass you by without laying hold of it. So the idea being that, you know, this picture of of you and I in a boat and the gospel, the salvation is on this 
this uh, this dock and, and it's within reach. We can just reach out and grab it and we'll be safe. But instead we just let it, you know, pass us by as we drift along. And so the warning that he's writing to these, these believers, these Christians, he's not talking about don't miss it and don't get saved. He's saying to those that are saved, now lay hold of it. Don't neglect it. Don't just put it on the shelf and do nothing with it. And so he, that led into to chapters 3 and 4, where he now began to talk more about uh, Moses and, and Joshua, and how Jesus is greater than Moses and he's greater than Joshua. And he used that as a, that backdrop of the, the children of Israel, how they leave Egypt and cross the wilderness and into Canaan, the promised land, as the picture of the Christian life for you and I. And the warning we saw in chapter 3 then was, don't miss out on the rest. Don't miss out on the abundant life that God has promised for us. And it's not talking about the sweet by and by. It's talking about now. Which is, again, when you understand the context of who he was writing to, these are people under intense persecution, intense strife. And he's saying, you can have rest right now, today. Today is the day you can enter in. And so we saw in chapter 4 how we enter into that rest. We enter into that rest when we give up on ourselves. When we, we have that wonderful statement of faith, right? I'm a failure. I'm a, I'm a disaster. I'm a mess. I don't have it all together. And praise God that I don't, because I'm not supposed to. Instead, He is working in me. He's loved me. He's accepted me. He's embraced me. And now I can live from Him. Live out of His life, rather than striving and struggling in my own. And so Hebrews 4.10, one of those, those you know, key verses of the, of the, of the book says that he who has entered into God's rest has ceased from his own, his own works. And, and so we've, we've stopped trying to strive in our own strength that we can begin to live out of the life of Christ. And so that was chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, he's starting to get into the, into the, the meat of it. And he starts talking, as we're going to see in a, in a few minutes, about the high priest and, and how Jesus is this high priest on the order of Melchizedek. And then he stops. And everything comes to a grinding halt in the flow of this letter. And he says, I wish we could go on further, but you guys have become dull of hearing. You guys are baby immature Christians. I was thinking about that this week. You know, if you got a letter, and in the letter, this, this writer says, you guys are so immature. I mean, I, I was just trying to imagine that. You know, being a, maybe a pastor and you get up to your church, and you just say, you bunch of babies, you bunch of immature Christians. How do you think that would have been received? He probably had a pink slip in his mailbox the next week or, or later on that day, right? I mean, people wouldn't you know, like to hear that sort of thing. And yet here was the, the writer of Hebrews, whoever he was, saying boldly to them, you guys have become slow to hear, dull of hearing. You've, you've heard the message, but you've done nothing with it. All you've done is you've gotten bogged down. You've gotten stuck in the, in the basic ABCs of Christianity. You've gotten hung up on, on the idea that faith is just a noun. It's something you have in the repentance of dead works. You got stuck on the baptisms and laying out of hands and the different, different rituals and rites of Christianity. Just about how you get saved. And then you get hung up on the end of the age and whether, you know, judgment and, and the tribulation and, and when the rapture is going to be, you know, is it a pre-trib or a post-trib or a mid-trib or a pan-trib? You know what pan-trib is, right? It all pans out in the end. So, I mean, you have all these debates about, you know, how the end's going to turn out. 
says, that's all baby talk. It's all simple baby talk. Let's grow up. Let's press on to maturity. But then we saw that third warning in Hebrews 6, which is the warning that if we don't press on to maturity, if we're not willing to go on, then we may never have the opportunity to go on on this side of eternity. That if we, if we neglect our salvation, if we put it aside on the shelf, God may say, fine, you want it, this is what you get. And we are destined to a life in the wilderness. And, uh, and that, to me, is, is probably the worst thing He can give us, is to give us that time in the wilderness. And so that was chapter 6. And then He ends off with chapter 6 about uh, this great hope. And so let me just read the last three verses of chapter 6. And he says, so in, uh, in the same way, God desiring even more to show to, to be heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interpose an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. And this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters into the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So he's now returning back to what he left off with in, in chapter 5, which is this Melchizedek character. So chapter, chapter 6, really at the end of chapter 5 and all chapter 6, is just an aside about the immaturity that they are, but he says, we're going to grow you up. And so we're going to feed you some roast beef. And so pressing on now, although he said earlier, I, I wish I could tell you more about Melchizedek, but you guys are slow to hear. But he gets to chapter 7 and goes, but I'm going to tell you anyways. We're going, to, we're going to go deep. And so you know what that means? The first six chapters of Hebrews was? It was all introduction. That was just the, the beginning. And now, beginning in chapter 7, he's going to start to get into it. He's going to start to, to get into the, into the meat of what he wanted to say. And, uh, and so, reading through chapter 7 and 8 and so forth, we're going to start to understand now, what was he trying to really accomplish? Where was he going with this letter? Chapter 6 was just the, the preamble to get him to where he wanted to be, which is now in chapter 7. So, why don't we pray? And then we'll dive into some roast beef, into the meat of Hebrews. Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, we have this wonderful gospel. And that you have given to us this, this letter in Hebrews to encourage us, to aid us, to strengthen us. And as we, uh, as we go through tonight, Father, I'm looking forward to what you're going to say. I'm, I'm personally not interested at all in what I have to say, but I want to hear what you have to say. And so we surrender to you and we open our hearts to you. And may you say whatever you want to say tonight, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, before we, we get into... Um, in the, into chapter 7 and, and into the meat of this, I, I want to give you a, a little bit more insight in terms of where he's going with this now. Remember, he's writing to a group of, of Jewish Christians, people who have uh, known the law. They've understood the religious practices and the rites and the traditions of, of being a Jew. And then they receive Jesus. They receive Christ. And what they've been doing, because they've really gotten stuck at the ABCs of Christianity, is they try to fit Christ into Judaism. 
they try to fit their Christianity into this Jewish model that they have for them. And, and that's what he's now going to address. And I think that's very appropriate for you and I because the church today has done the same thing. We've grown up with the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures. And what we've done is we've taken the Old Testament and we've spent so much time in understanding it and studying it that we don't understand the difference between the old and the new. And so we, we, we end up taking the whole thing and trying to fit them into one system. We take the New Testament, the Christian message, and try to fit it into the Old Testament, the Judaism. And, and what we end up with is a souped-up version of Judaism, which isn't Christianity at all. If you mix a little bit of law with grace, you don't get you know, a mixture of grace and law. You just get law. And so what we've essentially done is we've just kind of souped up the, Judas, the Judaism. You like this picture? As a race car guy, I really like this picture. Um, I, I, when I saw this, admire. I mean, he's even got the right tires and, and the aerodynamic shape. And, and then my favorite, I don't know if you can see it, there's the John Deere logo right there. Um, and he's riding his John Deere tractor. Now, it may look like a race car, but this is no race car. It's still a tractor. Because what powers it is the tractor. It is a tractor that's dressed up, but it's a tractor nonetheless. It's still a lawnmower. And you see, that's what we've essentially done with Christianity. We have, we have taken Judaism and just inserted a little bit of Christ into it. Think about what's Judaism. What is it essentially? It's a, it's a system of rules and regulations where you strive and do your best. And when you fail, what do you do? Now before that, you have to do something before you fail. You offer a sacrifice, a lamb, to receive atonement, forgiveness for the sins. And then you go back and you try again. But this time you better try harder. And then when you fail, not if, but when, what do you do? Another sacrifice, and you try again. And it's just round and round and round we go. Well, for many Christians, what is Christianity? It's a system of rules and regulations. Be it the Ten Commandments, be it religious rules that the church has given to us, be it your own personal rules that you have created and enforced on yourself. And so we have this system of rules that which now we strive to measure up and to accomplish, and then when we fail, what do we do? Repent. We offer a sacrifice. Who's our sacrifice? Well, wonderful is Jesus. We, we recognize that Jesus died for my sins, and so He's my Lamb, and then we go and we try again following the rules. And all we've done is we've taken the Old Testament model of Judaism, and we've just inserted a different Lamb. We change the lamp. We might change the rules a little bit because, you know, we think it's a little silly to follow all 613 commands. I mean, who wants to not mix fibers? We'd all be in trouble right now. So we, we pick and choose which laws we're going to follow. But essentially, it's still the same system. And so we have a souped up version of Judaism and we, we stick a label on it and we call it Christianity. And then we wonder, where's the life? Why are we not experiencing what, what Christ had in, in mind for us? And that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get at. He's trying to correct their concept of what the old covenant is and the new covenant is so they can get rid of the old and live out of the new. So it's not a souped up version of Judaism, but pure, authentic Christianity. Not a mixture of law and grace, but the real message of grace. Amen. All right. So if you, if you brought your Bibles, we're going to actually begin in chapter 4. Um, 
I was sharing with someone last weekend about, about you know, all these chapter and verse divisions. And the best tradition I've heard about how they came up with it is that there was a guy riding on a horseback. And every so often he would, you know, say, this is the chapter. But, you know, when you go over a bump or, or the horse, you know, nays, then you get, a, you know, the wrong chapter. To complicate things, he was drunk at the time. So chapter verse divisions aren't very good. Uh, especially so far in the book of Hebrews. I mean, if you wanted to start a new chapter, really should have tra- started here in, in verse 14 of chapter 4, because this is where he starts to lead into what he's going to talk about. So in verse 14, he says, Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our, con- our confession. What he's going to start talking about now in chapter 5, and then he had to take a break in chapter 6, but then he picks up again in chapter 7, is this idea of Jesus being a high priest. Now, here's where we have a disadvantage, I think, than the original uh, audience of this letter. When, when we think of priests, we tend to think of people like this guy, wearing the black suit with the little funky collar and... and and, and, you know, doing, you know, marrying people and, you know, christening little babies and burying them and, and that sort of thing. And, and we have this idea of, of a priest in this way. But this isn't what these guys are thinking about when they see the word priest. In fact, when they hear the word priest, they're thinking of this guy, the high priest, the guy that functioned in the temple. So... Not being Jews, I think it, it would be you know, to our advantage to understand a little bit about what this priest really did. Because uh, again, what he's doing, as soon as he mentions priest, they go, ah, oh, I know what that is. And they, they already know all the details about that. But for us, we don't have that background. So let's take a moment and understand a little bit about you know, the functions or role of a priest in the Old Testament. So I think on, uh, I'm not sure which page it is in your, your syllabus, 28? Uh, there's some things to write down. You don't have to write them all down. These are just, you know, some, some, I think, interesting things. Not everything about a priest is up here, but some of the things that I think apply to what the writer is going to do. Uh, because what he's going to start to do now is he's comparing Jesus to Aaron and all the other priests of Israel. And he's going to make this comparison. So in the Old Testament priest, um, the, the Latin word for priest is actually pontiff. In fact, where have you heard pontiff before? The Pope. And so when they call the Pope, the Pontiff, he's, they're calling him the High Priest, the, the Great Priest. And, um, and it's interesting where Pontiff means bridge builder. So their thinking was a bridge builder is this Pontiff, this person who is, who is trying to build a bridge between two separate people. And so the main role of the priest was to represent God to man and man to God. That's why he's this bridge builder. He's not just representing only God to man or only man to God, but he's doing both. He's this this mediator going back and forth, this bridge builder. Another role of the of the priest or sorry, the role of the priest originated at Mount Sinai in terms of the uh, the Old Testament priests with Aaron and so forth where God selected the tribe of Levi. That was where Moses and Aaron were from. They were of the tribe of Levi. And they, they selected Aaron to serve as the first priest, the high priest, and all the tribe of Levi was to become the other priests. They weren't to receive any land. Instead, they were to, to work in the temple. 
Um, they were not to have any land of their own. So they, uh, in the promised land, they were to rely upon the other tribes to provide what they needed. So that's where the idea of tithing came from, the 10%. So all the other tribes would, would give 10% to support this, the Levites. But God had selected Levites uh, apart so that they would, um, they would be God's people in that sense, in that role. And they would work in the temple. They would help prepare many, the many sacrifices that would be offered there each day. Uh, they would do all sorts of things. They would, they would sing. They would do repairs. Um, uh, all, all, all sorts of things. They were gatekeepers. So they would protect the temple. Uh, they, were, they were doing everything that was uh, required uh, in the temple. Uh, they would begin service at age 25, but they would retire at age 50. So never mind this Freedom 55 stuff. They would be done at age 50. They could still uh, continue to serve and help out in the temple, but it was required that they do no work, which I find interesting. So there's, there's a limited time to it. And, and we'll, we'll see more about why that's so interesting as we go on. Um, so they took care of the temple, as I said earlier. They were musicians, singers, gatekeepers. They cleaned the temple. Um, their service, including the ceremonies, were to perf- uh, including the ceremonies they were to perform, was very clearly defined by God in the Book of Leviticus. So if you've you know read through the Book of Leviticus, you probably already know that. And if you haven't, then it's a great book if you're having trouble sleeping, because he goes into great detail about. You know, how do you do this sacrifice? And if this happens, you do that sacrifice. And, and you use this lamb, but if a lamb's not available because they can't afford one, then you can accept this substitute or that substitute. And it just goes on and on and on again. Because that was a great part of their service. Every day, each and every day, there had been countless sacrifices. And then when, you know, the big one came at Passover time, it was, I mean, it was incredible the amount of sacrifices going on then. They, they said that the, the job of a priest was, was more like a butcher because he was slaughtering animals each and every day because of all the sins that were being committed. And then on Passover time, the streets would run, run red with the blood because there was so much being sacrificed because every person, every family at least, had to sacrifice an animal. And so you can just imagine how many sacrifices were going on in this temple each and every day and then even more so on, uh, on Passover time. If there was any handicap or deformity with the Levite, then they were, they were prevented from service in the temple. They weren't allowed to. And here was God making a statement that what he was requiring was perfection. And so if, if they were blind, if they had any kind of physical deformity, they, they, weren't, they weren't allowed to, to serve in the temple. Uh, the leper or the sick, they brought to the priest for healing, and that's mentioned again in the... Uh, in the book of Leviticus, how that person would have been healed uh, by, uh, or cared for by the Levites. Uh, the Levites would serve as the teachers of Israel. Uh, they would encourage Israel before they went to war and actually be the ones to lead them into war. And, and that was to be a reminder to the children of Israel that they weren't going alone, but that God was leading them into that battle. Uh, they were the nation's regulators and judges. So they basically cared for the nation. You know, in many ways, the Levites served as the civil service, or civil servants, I guess, for the, uh, for the country of Israel. And then finally, what they were, another response they had was they would care for the people's soul in order to make them whole. So in many ways, these were the original counselors, the, the, um, 
you know, maybe we think of psychologists or, or, or health, mental health workers to help people who are struggling through life. If you had an issue, you had a problem, you would go to a priest. And, and we see that, you know, even in the Catholic Church today, when people have problems, they go see their priests. And in Protestant churches, they go see their pastor. Well, that was the role that this priest was, was, was uh, responsible for. And he would offer what we refer to as pastoral care or pastoral counseling. And so the, the, you can see the priest had many different responsibilities, many different um, things to look after. Now, in addition to, to these responsibilities, the high priest had other responsibilities. And that's what we want to look at in particular because that's the comparison that Jesus is going to make. Remember, or sorry, the writer of Hebrews is going to make. Remember, at the end of chapter 4, he says we have this great high priest. And so what does the high priest do? Well, in, in addition to everything the priest did, he was in charge of the other priests. So he was, you know, the high priest. He was the president, the chief, uh, the guy leading everyone else. And, and the appointment of this priest was always going to be someone from the line of Aaron. So when God selected Aaron to be the very first high priest, it was going to be his oldest descendant would take over for Aaron. Now, Aaron wouldn't retire at age 50 like the other priests would have. He would have retired when he died. And so that's how the high priest would work. You could just work until you die. But the moment you died, then the oldest, the next old or the oldest living descendant would then take on that role. It's much like, you know, how kings work today. So when, you know, Queen Elizabeth, when she finally passes away in about 30, 40 years from now, then Prince Charles, if he's still alive, well, he'll take the throne. It's not like they put it up to a vote. They don't decide. It just automatically goes because the succession is based on your birth. Does that make sense? Uh, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. So that was that Passover. And he would make that offering, the offering for all the people. Um, he'd have to first do a cleansing for himself before he could enter that Holy of Holies, but he'd be the only person allowed into there. He would, uh, before that, he'd have officiated a ceremony of the two goats. You remember this? Where, where one goat would be uh, we set free to go into the wilderness, where the other goat would be condemned. And we even saw that you know, when Jesus was, was crucified. We had Barabbas and we had Jesus. There was the picture of the two goats. One, all the sins were put on, and, and, and he was the one killed, and the other was released and let go. Um, anyone who was not a high priest but tried to perform that role didn't turn out so well for him. He would have been killed if he walked into the temple. Um, or, you know, for others, they were, uh, some were, were stricken with leprosy and so forth. Because only the high priest could perform the role of the high priest. And then finally, uh, you can never serve as priest and king. They were very separate. If you remember, uh, all priests would have come from the tribe of Levi, whereas with um, uh, the kings, the first king Saul was a Benjamite, but thereafter, every king of, of Israel that, that reigned in Jerusalem, at least, was from the tribe of Judah. And that was David and, and all his, his kin. And so... Uh, the high priest was coming from Levi, from the, the tribe of Levi, specifically Aaron, whereas the king was always coming from Judah, specifically the line of David. And those two never crossed. And so you always had a different king from the priest. And if, there was one time where the king, I think it was King Uzziah, decided to try to be the priest. And, and God thought so well of that, thought it was a great idea, he struck him with leprosy. So you can't, you couldn't serve both in the Old Testament. 
and Judaism. There was no such thing as a priest and a high king together. Now, that all sounds really boring. <laughs> you know, I, I, when I'm making this list, uh, how can I make this interesting? I can't. I mean, it's just, just facts. Dry facts. But, but it's going to be important when we begin to apply this. Because now it's going to be understanding you know, how Jesus becomes our high priest. And remember, that's what they're thinking. This is their, all the background information they have. So when it talks about we have this great high priest, they're immediately thinking about this. What's a priest like? And so we have this great high priest in Jesus. In Hebrews 5 verse 1. So for every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifice for sins. And he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. Guess who that is, by the way? Isn't it great to be ignorant and misguided? That's you and I. Since he himself is beset with weakness, and because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. So we see as a priest has to come from men. It can't be a, you know, an alien. It can't be an angel. It can't be an animal. The priest has to come from men. And the reason being is he's got to be able to relate to men. He's got to understand what it means to be a man. And that's you know, true when it comes to helping people. If, if you haven't been helped yourself, then you can't help anybody. Otherwise, you will come down on people and you'll, you'll be cold, you'll be heartless, you won't have any understanding, you won't have any compassion. And so a priest, in order to represent man, has to be from man. And so what we have here is he can now deal, deal gently with the ignorant and misguided and he himself is beset with weakness. He knows what it's like to, be through, to go through that. So let's apply this in understanding Jesus is a high priest. Jesus, he lived as a man, and he knows all our weaknesses and frailties. Isn't that so good to know? I mean, he knows what it's like to deal with a busy life. Uh, in my house, we have, we have four little girls, and, and I love them, but it's loud at times. Girls just have a whole nother octave and, and a, a shrill to them, and, and they got emotions that, you know, just it blows my mind. And, and it's just, it's loud. It's crazy. And, and they all, if I ever sit down on the floor to pick something up, you know, I, I may have made the biggest mistake of my life because I'll have, you know, three people and the fourth one's shuffling very slowly right now, jumping on me in that moment just to, to, to get on me because they think it's a game. And, and that's just what they want to do. And, and so this idea, you know, life is busy. Life is crazy. He gets that. How do I know he gets that? Because he had 12 disciples that were a lot like my four little girls, I bet. Constantly asking silly questions. Not doing what they were told. All over the map. And he understands that. He gets that. He, he was surrounded by people, thousands of people, just clamoring for his attention. Constantly trying to, to reach out to him and to touch him and demanding of him, demanding and demanding and demanding. He gets that. He understands what it's like to be, feel overwhelmed, to feel like it is, everyone just wants something from you. He gets that. He understands what it's like to disappoint other people because there are some people that he didn't heal. Something he wasn't able to heal, he just, he just didn't. 
Like when he went to Pool Bethesda. He healed one person in the Pool Pool Bethesda. There would have been countless sick people there. And they probably were wondering, hey, why not heal me? And so he understands not being able to serve everybody and people being disappointed by him. He understands rejection. When he, when he tried to go home, the people rejected him. We know this Jesus kid. He's the son of Mary and Joseph. Messiah. Come on. Let's, let's be serious. I remember when he was only this high. And so they rejected him. He understands that. He gets that. He knows what it's like to have feelings scream at you. In, a, in saying something that is completely opposite to what God's saying. And then what do I do? How do I cope with that? How do I deal with that? He gets that. Because he lived as a man did. He, he didn't, you know, come halfway. He lived as man was intended to live. And so he experienced everything that we experience here. And then some. He, in fact, experienced it to a greater degree than we did. He knows what it's like to be tempted. For 40 days out there, he was tempted. We often read that, that, that you know, um, story about Jesus in the wilderness as if he went for a 40-day fast in the wilderness. And then at the end, Jesus, or Satan came along and asked him three simple questions. That's not what happened. He was tempted each and every day for 40 days straight. How many people have been tempted in that way for 40 days straight? You wouldn't make it. <laughs> I know I wouldn't, not for 40 days straight. I would have collapsed long into that. But Jesus stood up under every single day. So he knows what it's like. He's experienced it. He's been there. He knows what it means to live in a fallen world far more than we do because he knows what it used to be like. And so he's experienced that. He's seen the pain. He's seen the hurt. But now he's become our bridge builder. He's able to represent us to God and God to us. You see, this is what makes Jesus so unique. Remember how it said earlier that we, um, a priest has to come from a man in order to represent man. Well, what about the other side? Well, if a priest is coming from man to represent man, how does he represent God to man? Well, not very well. But Jesus, the only person, excuse me, the only person who also came from God. And so not only can he represent man to God because he came and lived as a man, but he can also now represent God to us because he's from God. He is God. So he's the ultimate bridge builder. He's the ultimate pontiff in order to restore the two of us together. Does that make sense? And now, just like that priest was, was, was charged to do, he's able to care for our souls. You know, I find it interesting, the word salvation. When I, when I say the word salvation, what comes to your mind? One time event. One time event that leads to what? Go to heaven. Yeah, that's the typical thinking of what salvation means. I find it really interesting. The, the Greek word at the root of salvation is sozo. And you know what the word sozo literally means? It means to be made whole. 
I really like that. It means to be made whole, to be made healthy. And that's, you know, one of the jobs of the priest was to care for your soul, to make you whole, to deal with any hurts and pains in the emotional level. And here comes Jesus, our great high priest, and he's come to make us whole. Not just to look after our spirits, but to look after our soul and even to look after our body. Think about the verse in Ephesians, uh, sorry, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and your soul and your body be made complete, may preserve complete to the end. And verse 24, faithful is he who calls you, for he will do it. He will bring it to pass. So God's agenda for us, you and I now, is to make us whole. To restore us. To restore us to what man was intended to be back in the garden. That we would be right with God. That we would live with God, in God, and from God. That God would be living through us in such a way that when people saw you and I, who would they see? They would see Christ in us. That's what he was attempting to do. So he's come now to care for our souls. To teach us. To be the teacher. He's the one now. To lead us into battle. Just like those, those Old Testament priests would have gotten out in front of the army before they went to fight the Philistines or any other nation. The priests would have gone first. And that would be the reminder that God is with us and He's leading the charge. Well, you and I, we go into battle every day. The moment your feet hit the ground when you wake up, you are, you are in a battle. I think we tend to forget that at times. We look around and we see our, our relatively cozy world and, and, and simple lifestyle that we have and we forget, we get lulled into sleep that we are in the midst of a great battle. A battle that's not with flesh and blood, Paul says in Ephesians, but a battle with principalities and darkness and an enemy out there who's desperate to take you out, who's desperate to take you down. But we don't battle alone. We don't even go into battle alone. He's the one that's going to lead us into that battle. So when you go off to work, when you deal with, with friends or family, or maybe even a child that's having, giving you fits, or, or a spouse, or health problems, whatever it is you're up against, you don't go alone. You have one leading the charge. You go with Jesus into that battle. And He's leading you as, as our high priest. He's able to heal us. And make us whole. That's our high priest. He's, he's, this is what the, the writer is trying to convey to these people. When he says, now this is our high priest. Consider him. Run to him. Draw near to him. This is the one that will provide, us, uh, provide for us. Does that make sense to everyone so far? Any light bulbs going off for anybody? Or any... Sozo, S-O-Z-O. -O. Oh, I have a light bulb here. You have a light bulb, good. Feeling, uh, my feelings waving at me many times. Yeah. Good. He knows what it's like. And, and he can comfort you, and he can walk with you, and he can lead you. And he's right there. He understands. One of his names is Wonderful Counselor. Yeah. Yeah. 
Think about when he when he came and he and he read out of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah sixty one, and, and he says, "I have come to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the prisoner free." I mean, this is this is what he did. He's being he's taken on that role as priest, as counselor, leading us now and teaching us. But. Really, what the author of Hebrews is, he's got a a far bigger agenda in mind. And so he says now about this priest, no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when when he's called by God, even as Aaron was. So Aaron was selected and and, and that's how it came to him. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. So he didn't just, you know, say, well, I'm going to be a high priest now. and That's just too bad. Instead, it was appointed to him. It was given to him. But he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So it was assigned to him to become priest when, by, by his father. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to, uh, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is one of those interesting enigmas in the Bible. And really what the writer of Hebrews is trying to write here and trying to convey is the type of high priest that Jesus is. Remember, what he's trying to do is he's trying to show them it's not a a combination of of Christianity fitting into Judaism. It's something separate and different. And so not only is Jesus better than than Aaron as a high priest, he's, he's on a whole different realm. He's on a whole different plane because he's a whole different kind of high priest. And the kind of high priest he is, is like Melchizedek was a high priest. So the question then is, who's Melchizedek? Who's this crazy looking guy? As one artist thought. Now Melchizedek, he, he shows up in three, uh, three different passages in the, book of he, in, the book, in the Bible. Sorry. He shows up for three verses in Genesis 14. He shows up, I think, in one verse in Psalm 110, about a thousand years later. And then, you know, a few centuries, about 500 or so years later, he shows up in the book of Hebrews for about a chapter and a half. Not even that. Just a few, one or two verses in chapter 5, and then a few other verses in chapter 7. And that's it. And so, what has man done? He's created these fantastic backstories to explain who this Melchizedek character is. And, and, and what they've done is by focusing on Melchizedek, they missed the glory of what the writer of Hebrews is trying to convey. What he was trying to explain to them. So, let's see if we can understand a little bit about who this Melchizedek character was. And then we can understand what the writer was trying to do. So, as I said, the first time Melchizedek shows up, he shows up in Genesis 14. So, what's going on in Genesis 14 is Abraham has his nephew Lot living in Sodom. They just had split, and Lot went to go live in Sodom. And a group of kings banded together. They decided to to come together in order to protect themselves, but also to attack other kings in other cities in order that they could grow their own kingdom. They wanted to, to try to make one giant kingdom. And so these kings come together and they went and they attacked Sodom and they defeated the city of Sodom. And they took everybody prisoner and all the goods and all the, the, the cattle and animals and so forth. And they, they just took off. 
Well, one of these guys escaped and they ran home and they saw, they found Abraham and said, Abraham, your nephew Lot's been kidnapped. The Sodom was defeated and, and all the people, including Lot, the women and children have been kidnapped. Will you help us? Will you rescue us? So Abraham, he turns to his 318 servants and says, let's go to battle. Not your typical militia. I mean, you don't typically say, turn to the butler and say, grab your sword, let's go fight. Um, you know, farmer, grab your sickle, we're going to use it on some, some enemies here. But that's what he did. He grabbed these 318 guys and he chased down these kings, split the army in two, and they came and they attacked and they ended up defeating the, these group of kings and sets them free. So he's now trucking back home with all the goods, including Lot, and he comes by a place that, you know, later is called Jerusalem. It's called Salem at, at this time. And he's, he's coming by Salem when this man named Melchizedek shows up. And that's where we pick it up here in verse 18. So, and Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. And then he disappears for a thousand years. Now, some commentators have looked at this and said, Huh, Melchizedek brought bread and wine. Well, who else has brought bread and wine? For what? Communion, Passover. And so they say, look, Melchizedek did communion with Abraham. Maybe. I don't know. I, I, don't, I, I don't know. Maybe. But then it goes on and it says that, that Abraham blessed Melchizedek by, or sorry, sorry, Melchizedek blessed Abram, and Abram gave to Melchizedek a tenth of everything. He gave him the top of the heap, the best of all the stuff that he had uh, um, gathered in, and when he defeated these kings, and he gave it to Melchizedek, to the priest. Does that make sense? So then he disappears for a thousand years until David writing a psalm, a psalm about the coming Messiah, a prophecy mentions him in Psalm 110. So let's read Psalm 110. A psalm of David. And the Lord says to my Lord, which I find just awesome. I mean, there's my Lord, Father, speaks to my Lord, Jesus. My Lord says to my Lord. So we start to see the Trinity, even in the Old Testament. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. dawn your youth are, are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And then he disappears again. No more Melchizedek until the writer of Hebrews brings him up. And he says in chapter 7, returning to Melchizedek, he says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, which is King of Peace. 
without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor the end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. So people love enigmas, and Melchizedek's right at the top of it. And so as I said earlier, we create all kinds of fantastic backstories about this guy. Who was he? Where did he come from? What, what was he doing? I mean, he had no mother, no father, without genealogy. Does that mean that he was just, just showed up on earth? Was he a created man? I mean, how does that work? He can't be a second Adam because we know that was Christ. So maybe Melchizedek was who? Maybe he was Jesus. Maybe he was Jesus. Jesus came and, and walked the earth. Maybe. I don't think so. Because it only says he was made like the Son of God. It doesn't say he was the Son of God. And the other thing, he's, he was the king of Salem. So he was obviously there. He was ruling. So I don't think it was Jesus. But it's not really the point. And, and like I, I mean, there are commentaries, pages and pages and commentaries, about who this Melchizedek character is. And you miss the point. The point is not who is Melchizedek, but rather, who is Melchizedek pointing us to? See, Melchizedek really was just a character. He was a foreshadow for us. He goes now on, saying verses 4 and 5, Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed are the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have the commandment, to, uh, commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people. That is from their brethren, although these are descendant from Abraham. What he's trying to do, what he's trying to get across to these people, is what was the reason behind Melchizedek? Who was Melchizedek pointing to? And what he was is he was a shadow. In, in, the, in the Bible, there are all kinds of shadows or types. And what a shadow or type is, is someone that is, is trying to give us an image. So really, I guess a better word would be a foreshadow. So we see that all the time. Think about David and Goliath. David and Goliath is a foreshadow where David plays the picture of Jesus. He leads his nation out, and with one blow, he fells the enemy. But what did Jesus do? With one blow, with one death on that cross... He took over death. He took down death. He defeated it. And guess who benefited from it? All those in him. And so David now becomes this picture, this type. And, and you see it time and time again. The children of Israel are a type, a type of the Christian life. As they go from Egypt, a type of being in bondage to sin. Through the wilderness, a type of living in self-effort. To the promised land, a type of rest. And so the Bible, the stories in the Old Testament are our characters, our types, so that we have an understanding of what the Christian life looks like or who Jesus looks like. And we see that time and time again. They're almost kind of like mini parables, just using real stories to convey the message. Does that make sense? So Melchizedek, it doesn't matter who he was. All that matters about Melchizedek is who he was pointing us to. Who Melchizedek was trying to, to show us. Who he was foreshadowing. And that person was Jesus. So let's understand Melchizedek then. But only so that we have a better understanding of Jesus. So we start with his name, Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. That's what his name means. 
I mean, that's a pretty cool name. King of Righteousness. And not only that, but he was the king of a place called Salem, later to be called Jerusalem. Well, Salem literally means peace. So he's the king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace. Does that sound like anyone you know? He was a king and a high priest. He's both. He held both offices at the same time. Does that sound like anyone you know? What's interesting about him is he wasn't a Jew. Well, because he, he came to Abraham. Abraham would have, if, if it was the first Jew, Abraham was the first Jew. And Melchizedek was not a Jew. He was not a descendant of Abraham. All Jews are descended from Abraham, more specifically even from Jacob. But Melchizedek wasn't a Jew. He was separate from that. Yep. How can he be a, a king and not priest at the same time? Mm-hmm. Well, if that wasn't... wasn't possible. He wasn't in. That's the whole point that he's trying to make. He wasn't included in in the Old Testament, Old Covenant system. Not only did he predate it, but he wasn't he wasn't a part of it. It was completely separate. So he could be a king and a high priest because he wasn't under. The Old Covenant. He didn't have the same requirement of being from the tribe of Levi and being from the tribe of Judah. He wasn't even a Jew. He was completely separate and distinct from it. It's kind of like saying, um, in America, they have a law that says you can't be president and vice president at the same time. You can only have one office, one or the other. Whereas in Canada... You can be prime minister and governor general and, and everything. You know, you can have all the offices in one time. You say, well, in America, you can't do that. Yeah, it doesn't matter. He's Canadian. He's completely separate. He's, he's in a whole different system. And, and that's what the author is trying to get at about Melchizedek is he doesn't, he's not bound to the Levitical code. He's not bound to the Old Covenant because he's apart from it. In fact, he's greater than it. Is what he's going to say. Does that make sense? So he has no father, no mother, no genealogy. Now, again, we look into that and say, oh, what does that mean? He had no father, no mother. You know, we can't even say it was a virgin birth. It must have been just, just immaculate creation, I guess. But that's not the point. The point is that, that him having no mother, no father, no genealogy is to show that he was eternal. No beginning, no end. Does that sound like anybody you know? And, and the fact that he has no, no record of his death just implies that, that he's going on forever. He's, he's continuing on to be a priest. And so what the writer is trying to prove is that the priesthood of Jesus is greater than the priesthood of Aaron. It's not under the priesthood of Aaron. It's not even like the priesthood of Aaron, but it's even greater than the priesthood of Aaron. So how, how does he make this case? How does he prove it? Well, let's go back to the text in verse 6. He says, But the one whose genealogy is not traced 
from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Meaning, his genealogy doesn't come from Levi. So he's, he's not a Jew, he's not of the tribe of Levi, he's not from them, but he collected a tenth from Abraham. But Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. And the point being is, because without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So who blessed Abraham? Melchizedek. What does that say about Melchizedek to Abraham? If we were comparing who is better, Melchizedek or Abraham, what would be the answer? Because Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Not only that, Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Again, reinforcing this. And this is, they understand that in their culture. So without any dispute, no one's going to argue this point, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, therefore Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Now in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it was witnessed that he lives on. So now someone, the idea being immortal, received tithes. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Meaning, not only did Abraham pay a tithe to Melchizedek, but who else paid the tithe? Because Levi, and this is the theology of in, that Levi, although his, his grandfather wasn't even born at this time, he was able to pay a tithe because your life is in your father before you're conceived. And so in Abraham contained all the Jewish people. The entire nation of Israel was contained in the loins of Abraham, including Levi and including Aaron. And so when Levi, or sorry, when Abraham paid that tithe, everybody in, in the nation of Israel paid that tithe as well. Meaning Melchizedek is not just greater than Abraham, but he's greater than everybody in the tribe of Israel including Levi and including Aaron. Does that make sense? So even Aaron, who was the one who received tithes from everyone else, he went and he paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Does that make sense? So the point being is Melchizedek is greater than Aaron. So what? <laughs> Big deal. What's the point? We'll find out after the break. <laughs> I got to give you some kind of a cliffhanger, right? This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in Him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.